Hello, and welcome to this episode of Her Music Academia, the podcast. I'm your host, Lydia Bangura. I'm a musician, specifically a soprano. I'm a music theorist. I'm currently in a PhD program at the University of Michigan. I do research on Black people in classical music, since I'm a Black person in classical music. And I'm also a podcaster. I do this show to talk about my own research, my musical interests, my performance. And I have other musicians on the show to talk about what they do in music. Today on the show, we have Chelsea Hollow, a San Francisco-based soprano, doing some really, really interesting work with her performance. We talk all about her musical upbringing and her experiences in music as a singer. And we get into her current work. Specifically, we dive into her recent debut album, Cycles of Resistance, which features a number of art song cycles in eight different languages. It's a really interesting project as a response to the pandemic and spawned a lot of questions for me about the intersection of music and activism. Make sure you stream or purchase Cycles of Resistance. All the links to everything that we mentioned will be in the show notes. Without further ado, here's our conversation. All right. Hello, everyone. And thank you for listening to this very special episode of the podcast. I'm really excited to introduce my guest today, who is a soprano who has some really fascinating work. Um, I'm really glad that she reached out to me because now I know about her work and you do, too. So today we're going to talk to Chelsea Hollow. Chelsea, how are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me today. Thank you so much for coming on the show and for reaching out. Again, I'm just so happy to be aware of the things that you're doing now. And I can't wait to hear all about, you know, the people that you're collaborating with, all of that stuff. So it's going to be fascinating. Um, Let's go ahead and jump right in and start with a bit about you and your background. So where you're from and the music that was happening in the place where you're from at the time that you were born and um, how music was functioning in your family, if you're from a musical family, when you started formally interacting with music in some way, all of that. Yeah, thanks. Um, Okay, so I'm from Southern California and uh, my mom jokes that I was born singing or that my first words were sung because I said shoo (laughs) and I sang it shoo. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, I think, you know, my dad is an extremely talented uh, drummer. He plays set drums. So we grew up with lots of classic rock and Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. Um, I learned to play guitar when I was young and I started writing my own music and just schmaltzy love songs um, (laughs) and stuff. But uh, Yeah, I think I guess another important part was in my childhood, I went to Catholic school and um, I was in the choir there. And so I sang a lot in choir, but it was kind of new agey uh, Catholicism. And then in high school, I sang a little bit uh, in the choir and I think I was the lowest tenor because I didn't know what head voice was. (laughs) Wow. Pretty silly. When it was time for me to go to college, I really wanted to go to Cornell to study physics. I was really into sciences, um, but I didn't have enough of the funding to go to college right away. So I went to community college Mm -hmm. and um, I found classical music there. And there was like a sign that said free voice lessons for music majors. And I thought, I like to sing. Um, (laughs) So I auditioned with probably a Britney Spears version of uh, Conte Partiro. Yes. Um, <laughs> oh, and we need the link to that, some, please. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, this was, thank God, it was before pre-screening because there's no proof of this. But I'm sure it was something like Conte Partiro. Yes, you could recreate um, it, listeners. Yeah, <laughs> Sign I'm the petition sure. in the show notes for Chelsea to recreate this. <laughs> Anyone can hear it who can give me uh, their own horrible (laughs) early recordings. Yeah, but I got in and I kind of fell in love with classical music. I had always been an uber student. I loved learning new things. I was very quick at all of the things that I had learned in high school. I spoke French and I, I was into cultures and 
and science. And when I found classical music, it seemed to kind of put all of those things together. There was the pedagogy and the physiology of singing. There was the language exploration and cultural traditions of all the different um, now <laughs> very kind of vanilla um, cultural traditions. But for me, they were like really fresh and new. I had never seen much um, outside of my like hippie Southern California upbringing. Mm -hmm. And so it, it really meant a lot to me. And what I started realizing was, I think the the reason I was so compelled to explore different cultural traditions was because I am half Arabic. And when my jiddo, my grandfather came here from Lebanon, he wanted to start a life for his family that made sense for his children to be, you know, supported in creating lives that felt really um, like they could thrive in them. And he and my Nana did not teach them any Arabic. They did not pass down any cultural traditions besides food and some drumming and dancing at weddings. And I think I was always really drawn to that side of my heritage. And I, I think I was always grasping at it. That's why I've learned French in high school, my first class, they said, oh, this is a very common language all over the world. And here in, they showed a map and I saw Lebanon and I was like, they speak French in Lebanon. <laughs> and I think I like immediately just wanted to learn more about my heritage because it was so stripped away, you know, mm -hmm. and my mom's side is a similar story from, you know, Yugoslavia and Hungary and Czechoslovakia and Germany and Austria. It's kind of a whole wash of all of those cultures. And again, you know, didn't have any foreign language spoken at the home. And so it wasn't passed down. And so I was always searching for that part of my history and ancestry. And classical music started giving me all of these interesting ways of looking at different cultures, at different traditions, and kind of figuring them out. There's so much like meticulous language and diction mm -hmm. uh, use. There's this prioritization in translation and communication and all these different things. And I think for me, that's one of the reasons I was so quick to just jump into this industry that I didn't know really anything about. Mm. So that was, I think, how I got into classical music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm also a community college girl who, unfortunately, you know, when I was studying music as a kid, my first instrument was viola. So I was a violist for a really long time and then ended up getting really interested in classical voice in college. So then I switched my major mm -hmm. to classical voice. The shock of my parents. Um, <laughs> honestly, my that's the thing, though, is that my parents were pretty surprised when I wanted to be a music major in general. Um, and I'm also a first generation American. My parents are from Sierra Leone. And so they were very much like, oh, no, this is not why we came to America. You're supposed to be right. a lawyer or something like this is not we're not co-signing this. And so we gave you everything. <laughs> exactly. Just for you to pick music. Like, what is what does that mean? How do you make money? And I was like, I don't know. But, you know, <laughs> there, there's clearly there was more value in it for me than simply making money or whatever. And so, you know, I ended up going to community college because unfortunately they weren't very supportive of me going to university right out of high school. And so kind of pulled some financial support. And so I ended mm -hmm. up staying at home and going to community college, but it was such a great option for me, even though it came about in circumstances that weren't foreseen or that were less than desirable, it still turned out to be such a great opportunity for me. Every professor that I had at community college was so fantastic. Shout out to Jair. I met my editor there. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it was just such a great experience. So how was your time at community college? Oh, I loved it. I mean, I was such a novice when it came to classical music. I I had never heard an opera until I was, you know, singing it myself. And I, um, I remember going to the, the bookstore to go to the CD section and um, <laughs> buy CDs to mm -hmm. learn about opera. Yeah, it was fabulous. I think I just dove right in. Uh, the cool thing about my school was it was a very small music program. I was the only vocal major, which is probably why I got in. Wow. Um, yeah. And so... I didn't have I didn't have any idea that like vocal majors, I feel like at school since then, I've learned that there are some assumptions about how 
vocalists are perceived and how they kind of show up in different musical settings as like separate from musicians. But I just was a musician Mm. um, because there wasn't another singer. So I was actually my, I was the theory tutor at our school and I was, you know. And now we're talking, (laughs) listeners. Right? (laughs) Um, And so it was just like, I had this opportunity to kind of discover what it meant to be a vocalist myself. I didn't know that that singers don't practice as much as pianists. <laughs> that <laughs> didn't occur to me. I was in the practice room just as long as they were. I wasn't singing the whole time, but I mm. was, you know, practicing all the other things we have to do, the diction. And I also I didn't even read music, so I had a lot of catching up to do. But yeah, by the time I was in my second year there, I was the theory tutor. I had taught myself how to read music and I had studied deeply. And um, yeah, so I think for me, it was really, really valuable to be at community college and have a very, very small pond in which to swim around and learn a little bit Mm. about this thing we call classical music. No, absolutely. And that's that's such a great point about singer stereotypes and um, (laughs) kind of the ways that you can be siloed when it comes to being in a voice program, especially because like so when you are an instrumentalist and you're in ensembles, you're still playing with other instruments. But when you're a singer, you're in choir and you're in operas. And so your ensembles are always singers and you just don't get to interact as deeply with instrumentalists, I guess, outside of accompanists and pianists most you know most commonly so it is really refreshing to be able to just like mingle with other types of music and other types of instruments and learn so much more about like methodologies and approaches to music in that way and you know listen this whole podcast exists to bust the myth that singers can't do theory I am living proof (laughs) Chelsea is living proof singers read music and we know about music theory um but you know there's all that whole you know stereotype there as well in terms of you know singers really struggling to read music or maybe only being good for like aural perception stuff, but not so good at the written stuff. And that's just not true, people. (laughs) And also, you know, pianists and composers can struggle with these things as well. It really kind of depends on your musical upbringing and your set of circumstances, a good teacher and how much time you're willing to put in to learning those skills. Thank you so much for sharing. So let's continue in your musical trajectory. So after (laughs) community college, then what? So I went to San Francisco State and I studied voice there. Um, and then I took a couple years off, uh, and worked locally and yeah, there was just a lot of like local performance opportunities. I I live in San Francisco or near there. And so I was performing a lot in the area and then I just really got this feeling that I wanted to go to grad school and I auditioned one year and didn't get in anywhere and had this big reality check of like, oh, I thought I was this like amazing talent because I have these ridiculously high, you know, range availabilities in my voice. Oh, and she Um, does. We'll talk about it. Listeners. (laughs) Wow. But I think that was really all I had to offer, to be honest. At the time, I I was dedicated, but I didn't know much about the industry. I didn't know much about the tradition. I was kind of obsessed with performance and the like sparkly high notes um, at that point. And so I took a year off um, to just, I, after all of the, uh, rejection letters came in, I wrote myself a, an acceptance letter to the Chelsea Hollow Conservatory of Music. Yes. Wow. <laughs> and I really dug deep. I like made a class schedule for myself. I, I, I got every, you know, lecture I could get my hands on. There were at the time, I think the great courses was, um, just releasing, uh, oh, what is his name? He's so good. Greenberg, Robert Greenberg. Mm. He has a bunch of lectures on music and I just used those as like a starting point to whenever, instead of thinking about it before in my academic journey, when it came to music, everything was so new that it was hard to see where I was interested in finding new paths. And so I was just kind of re-immersing myself in all of the basics to see like, where am I interested in like going further? Mm. <laughs> and I did that. I did a lot of deep study. I, I did voice lessons and really focused on my middle voice because I needed some serious help there. And I auditioned again and got into the SF Conservatory of Music and I did my master's there. 
dove right in. I was so excited to be back in school. I took nothing for granted. And I was just like, the teachers would assign a five page paper. And I was like, here's a five page bibliography and a 30 page paper. Um, I just was obsessed. I was so, I was like ravenous for information. And um, yeah. So after that, I still sang locally. I stayed in the Bay Area because I met my husband here and we have a child together and we are very happy here. The Bay Area has so many awesome, like small performance opportunities. And so it's a great place to kind of discover yourself as an artist. And then I think it was, yeah, it was in 2016 that um, I just started to kind of wake up with a lot of, a lot of deeper awareness of what was important to me in the world and a lot of questions about why I was like wasting my time on music when I could maybe be organizing and volunteering and doing better things in my community. And I heard a speech by Valerie Kaur where she talks about the darkness of this time and how we need to resist and labor and birth a better society, that it's maybe not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb. And it kind of hit me that I've always loved art music, but I wanted to start commissioning music that really spoke to me, that spoke to my community, that spoke to these times. And so I did that. I started, I actually, that was the first, my first commission was that work to sing as an art song. And I reached out to Valerie Kaur and she gave me permission. And, um, so I started working towards um, what I called at the time operatic activism, um, just mostly as like my own compass guide of like, no, I want to sing things that matter. I don't want to, I think because my voice is high, I often am cast as these like very ditzy, um, self-centered roles. Mm. And I, it didn't speak to my heart. I wanted to be singing things that were cathartic and meaningful. And I wanted to be increasing the perspectives that are available in classical music. And so that's what I do now. <laughs> wow. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing all that. I have so many questions already. I'm like, where do we start? Okay. I mean, so this is interesting because just now, as you were talking, you referred to, you know, this time in your life where you were just, you know, focusing on music. And then you said like, I, I felt like I was wasting my time doing just music and I wanted to do something else. But it's interesting because you found a way to use your love of music and use your practical skills um, in order to transform doing quote unquote just music, which, you know, is something that that's really interesting in terms of let's, let's unpack that. Like, what, what do you, yeah. what do you mean by, you know, what, what's the difference between kind of the music you were singing before and the transition that you've made into singing music that really matters to you or, you know, music that you, you feel has maybe a clearer story to tell? Yeah, it's a, such a good question. I think what I mean by quote, just music is that at that time I was very much like, doing the hustling game of, you know, pursuing a music career and whatever that <laughs> so means, right? Whatever that means. And I was just, you know, kind of flying blindly towards this, this end game that I didn't quite understand. Um, I knew I wanted to sing. I knew I was quite good at it because I was getting that feedback. I knew I had something to offer, but I didn't quite understand why it mattered. And I think at the time, the roles that I was being hired to sing were like Olympia from Tales of Hoffman mm -hmm. and the cat that became a woman, right? Mm -hmm. Lots of like mm -hmm. flighty roles. I really loved Zerbinetta and Lakme that gave me some more like depth, but it was all just this personal discovery of character and drama. It wasn't, it didn't feel like a gift to my community. It didn't feel like I was, mm. um, it really, it felt like I was a distraction. I think that's a better way of putting mm. it, that I think distraction is important. I think comic relief is important. Um, and art just for art's sake is important. I don't, I don't doubt that. But for me, especially like at, in 2016, I mean, I had a one-year-old daughter who I took with me to vote for our first female president. I was right. so excited. You know, we, I wore a white pantsuit and I was like, this is yes. a big thing that's <laughs> happening. 
Um, and your daughter in her matching just, pantsuit. <laughs> exactly. My heart was broken. My world was shattered. I just like couldn't believe that I was so disconnected. You know, I had just sung in Mexico and everyone there was like, well, yeah, Trump's going to get elected. And I was like, no way. You know, I was like in this like San Francisco, you know, bubble. And um, I was just for me, it felt so offensive that our society was like just so polarized and that we could, you know, elect someone who was so corrupt, just so corrupt yeah. and rude and unkind. Mm-hmm. The un- the level of unkindness just really, it shook me. And I think, you know, um, I needed to find some way of being a better part of society and more, I wanted to do more. Mm-hmm. Um, when I heard that speech by Valerie Kaur, I really dug in. I thought, oh my gosh, this is what music can be, right? Mm. There are certainly like traditions of amazing music activism and just like messages being conveyed and perspectives being conveyed. And I, I realized like, okay, here I have this awareness of IPA, the international phonetic alphabet, which I have like used to its extremes with German and French and Italian and maybe Czech. Mm. Um, And I just realized like, oh my God, we have so much opportunity to do more. Mm-hmm. We have these awesome skill sets of, you know, awareness of how to use our voice as singers and how to manipulate our vowels and how to communicate on the, these really core levels that I wanted to do that to bring my community together. I wanted to do that to help my community see and hear each other more deeply yeah, it just seemed obvious to me that when we see each other as human, when we really listen to each other and each other's perspectives, that we have a deeper understanding and a connection together. We become family, a human family, instead of these polarized parts. Mm. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. You know, it's interesting because when when you first kind of use that phrase, like just music, um, <laughs> and again, like, thank you for clarifying what you mean by that because it was so I think your definition is really helpful when I think of that phrase just because I I I would bet that every musician (laughs) has a definition for what they mean when they say just music and for me what kind of comes to mind is like you know when I was entering the operatic scene and like knowing so clearly or feeling really clearly that I didn't really belong there as a black singer And so just music being music that kind of reinforces the same music Mm. historical narratives that you learn when you're in school, right? We're taught a history of white male composers. We're taught a history of exceptional white performers. And that's really as expansive as it goes. Maybe a couple women, maybe a couple black people, but like, you know, so like I, when I hear like just music, I, I think of music that reinforces what music as it stands is and what is exceptional Mm. music and what is art music and what's other music and right Mm. like so so things that kind of reify what we know to be music or how we talk about music and so I think your your definition is so helpful in terms of like how you were connecting to it and how it was maybe the, the way that you were interacting with music at the time is maybe blocking you from the way that you actually wanted to interact with your community through music. Yeah. And so, you know, getting in touch with like, what is missing here? What does my community need? And how does music fit that need? And how can I like, mm-hmm. you know, use music as a, as a vehicle to artistically fit and feel like what is missing there? I just think it's, it's really exciting and really brilliant and something that, as artists and as musicians, we can all think about the communities that we're involved in and how we want to, how we see ourselves fitting into that space and filling a missing need that's there. Absolutely. Oh, you're so eloquent in describing all of that. I just, (laughs) I want, I want to journal on so much of that. I, you brought to mind so many aspects. I think, yeah, there's, you know, you, you bring up the feeling of feeling like you don't belong in classical music. And I think there's so many of us who feel that from so many different angles yeah. because it basically, you're right. It is just all, you know, old white guys. And like, 
when we finally dig into how we can fit into that, I think we're we're the first versions we come up with often deny us our actual uniqueness of what we bring to the table, right? Mm-hmm. Like I hid for so long that I was that I had this history of popular music and that I could belt and sing classic rock and do all of that because I thought I had to be an opera singer, you know? Mm. Um, and I was constantly feeling like culturally I couldn't find it. I didn't find any Arabic until my master's degree. I finally was able to do an Arabic set. And even with that, I didn't have any support in how to pronounce anything. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it was like, I had to dig to find a coach who could speak, who could play piano and sort of new classical music and also spoke Arabic and could talk with me about how to pronounce these words authentically. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of us are just like denying the core of our artistry, right? Mm. You think of other musical genres and I don't think we do that as much in other genres. We are like, we celebrate what we bring to the table. Mm. Um, yeah. And I, you're right. Yeah. I think about all the time, you know, the, the, the push to explain, like expand classical music as we know it to be popular music, just does that so much more naturally. Like we celebrate new music and we celebrate new artists in a way that we don't really in classical music, right? Because we perform the same yeah. stuff and that's the stuff that sells <laughs> and that's the stuff that gets the funding and that's what people want to donate to when they want to go to the symphony and hear their favorite symphonies. They don't want to go and hear a new thing because then they have to get invested in a new thing. Whereas in popular music, that's the norm. Like we're always looking for new things new artists, right? We have awards every year that that nominate and uphold newcomers onto the scene. And so the canon is always kind of, exp- like the popular music canon is always kind of naturally expanding in a way that there's a lot of pushback in classical music because there's such an emphasis on tradition and, and like doing things the same way and the same performances and the same performers and the same recordings. So it's a club too, right? mm -hmm. Like it's definitely like, I feel like you go and people are like, you applaud to something at the wrong time. And they're like, Oh, you don't know. It's about power. It's about power. It's It's about authority. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I'm not surprised that so many people feel like they don't fit in at a classical concert. And I think that's a big part of, so the other side of operatic activism, what I've like turned it into is I do sing the texts of activists, but I also, like actively want to engage new audiences with all the old stuff too, right? Like when I'm singing something that is classical, how can I make it approachable and interesting to all audiences? Hmm. I don't know. We need to do better. (laughs) That is the challenge. That is the challenge. And I I go back and forth about this all the time because part of me is like, just let classical music be like, when we're, when we're talking about inclusion, right, of new of new audiences into old spaces and the inclusion of like more BIPOC musicians or more women into these spaces, more queer artists into these spaces. You know, there's a there's a reason why we feel excluded in the first place. And so part of me is like, just don't go where you're not wanted <laughs> like get out while you can and find someplace that's <laughs> that's more welcoming to you you know I do a lot of research on black musicians and black classical music in particular black people writing music in the quote-unquote concert tradition and how there are so many people that start off in classical music and then very quickly are like I'm about to be a jazz musician now I'm not I'm not staying here and I find that yeah. migration so interesting um, in terms of going where your likeness and your culture and your music is celebrated. So I would understand, right, why new audiences find it so off-putting if they don't see themselves there or if the music that they hear doesn't tell a story that resonates with them or that resonates with their community. So it's weird. I, I go back and forth all the time about like, well, yeah, if the kids don't like it. That's okay. They have musical traditions and music, right? They they're creating their own musical narratives and musical traditions, and that's fine. And I don't want to be the old lady on the porch who's like, "And y'all don't appreciate the beauty of Puccini or whatever." And I'm not doing that, right? But I but I also feel as somebody who deeply loves classical music and loves what I do that I I would want the people in my community to be interested in it. But the people in my community are interested in it because of the performers that they connect to, not necessarily mm. because they have a, a 
you know, a vested interest in the music and its origins of the music. You know, if my friends come to see me perform, it's because they're excited about seeing me, not necessarily because they're excited about seeing Mozart. So again, there's that connection (laughs) piece there as far as like how we're connecting with our community and kind of through the connection that they have with us, that might be kind of their end to the music. So I'm also really interested in knowing about your, and this is where we can get into your album, knowing more about how your art and your artistry was affected by the pandemic, right? Because that was, Mm. you know, is, continues to be, right? Such an interesting time in terms of artistry and music making and performance and what it says about all those things. So I'd love to know, like, since the onset of the pandemic, how your music making has changed. Yeah. I mean, I think it's true for all of us that it was just such a, (laughs) we went through a wormhole to a new place. And for me, so I had at the beginning of the pandemic, I had just received all of the kind of marketing materials from my feminist recital, which I had commissioned in 2018. And I had commissioned three works and I had curated a whole recital around women and the perspective of women and was very proud of it and excited to kind of like pitch it out as a concert to tour with. Mm -hmm. It's Um, really beautiful stuff. Listeners, all the links are in the show notes. Please check it out. (laughs) Thank you. But yeah, it, the pandemic happened and I mean, everything just stopped, right? I, I had every performance canceled for the next two years and it just felt like I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I was missing my community you know, we were all feeling so alone for so long. And yeah, I, I was sad about not being able to do my concert that I had just put together, but I also felt this like huge shift in society, right? This was, you know, George Floyd was murdered early in the pandemic and there were like so many societal things happening and fracturing that just felt like this opportunity to connect to this new catharsis I was finding with music and reaching out to my community. And so I created a call for proposals with really just giving composers the uh, permission to propose anything that they felt I could authentically sing since I was commissioning it to be a recital for myself that felt like it was giving voice and perspective to something important to them. A big part of that was that I wanted it to be in whatever original language I wanted the text to be in original language, not in translation, and that I would do whatever work necessary to authentically perform those languages. And I received (laughs) so many proposals from all over the world. It was like overwhelming how much of the community wanted to express themselves and this time through art music. Mm. And so um, I commissioned 22 songs. Wow in eight different languages. And um, that has led to my my album, which I just released called Cycles of Resistance. And so the name has two meanings. It's the cyclical nature of history repeating itself and the way we have to kind of progress slowly, right? Two steps forward, one step back. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way that there's always new voices we need to add and diversify um, new perspectives to gain communal knowledge from, you know, um, and community. And it's also, of course, art song cycles. Um, so. Vai Guruji Kakasa, Vai Guruji Ki Fateh. On Christmas Eve, a hundred years ago, my grandfather waited in a dark He sailed by steamship across the Pacific Ocean from India to America. Dark skin, his tall turban, 
Cycles of resistance. Yeah, that's my that's my new venture. <laughs> mm. Listeners, again, links, 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 links on the show notes. It is really, really interesting, fantastic work. And of course, Chelsea, your voice is stunning. So, so wonderful to listen to um, and to explore. There's there's so many different types of singing presented. Like, it's just really mm-hmm. fascinating. So how tell us about that process of collaboration and the process for production, especially. So did you start this project? You started this project like while we were still locked down, correct? Yes. Yeah, it was. OK, it was May 2020 when I did the um, call wow. for proposals and by I had a due date of compositions. I, I selected uh, compositions or proposals in June. And then I had a due date of November, I think, first, because I had a scheduled concert to perform them in December, which is just wild is way too fast of a turnaround for anyone who wants to commission allow way more time than that because I did not know what to expect so I did prepare all that music for that December concert which was totally shut down because the pandemic was we were in another big surge Mm -hmm. so while it was just meant to be a live streamed concert it was canceled anyway because we needed five people in the same space Mm. and so We put that off and I finally was able to rebook a concert for January 22. Mm. So a whole year went by. And during that year, I was able to like massively dig into the project and to my own, you know, like I said, there's eight different languages on it. And the languages are not languages I had done. There is one phrase in German, which I was familiar with, but everything else, there was Mandarin and Dutch and Arabic, some Sanskrit Vedic chant. There is Turkish and what am I missing? Czech. So yeah, it was it was all new music and new languages that I wow. was happy to kind of have more time to dig into. Mm-hmm. So I did that and we put it on in January, but I kept, this was like my first performance back from the pandemic. Wow, intense. I just kept, I kept assuming it was going to get canceled. And so I thought, let's do, we'll book a recording session so that we can at least make sure we're still on task and preparing the music for this recording session. And then after the recording session, I ended up sending those out, the tracks out to various record labels to see if anyone was interested in, in producing it. So that's when Arrowcade came on and, and produced it. Fantastic. Wow. So yeah, what an interesting pandemic project to, you know, work. <laughs> and then I assume you were in correspondence with all of these composers from, you know, abroad and, like, wow, what an interesting... Yeah, I've now met some of them, but I hadn't met any of them except one who I had already commissioned uh, a few years before. Everyone else was brand new that I was just meeting virtually to create this art. So it, it felt pretty magical to be home during a pandemic where we were all quarantined mm-hmm. in our own spaces, but also creating real art together over these boundaries. Mm, Absolutely. Um, And since the album has come out, which is earlier this year, um, it was in April? Okay. Yes. Um, So what what has the response been like? Um, (laughs) I think it's hard to get music out there. (laughs) I'm learning a lot about this. Mm. Um, For the people who have listened to it, they've they've largely really liked it. Mm -hmm. Um, I've heard that it's a little heavy to listen to the entire album, which I totally get. Mm. So I, I always recommend people, you know, sit with a cycle, go through. I have so many program notes available online of the texts and the stories behind the texts mm-hmm. and the translations, which I meticulously did. And so, yeah, I think sitting with a song cycle and just living with that is really valuable. In performance, when I perform the full album, I do extensive spoken program notes. And so I kind of weave this journey as we go through all the different, you know, um, movements, I mean, political movements that are represented there. And so it feels, and then I have super titles with the translations happening as I'm saying them. So it feels a lot more inviting. I think to listen to it as an album is a big endeavor. So pick a language and sit down and enjoy it. Um, but yeah, people are excited about it. I think it's it's a heavy, 
it's a heavy ask to ask someone to listen to like, you know, what is it like an hour and a half of music mm. um, in languages that are not super common in the classical canon. So um, I think that's tough. But that said, people are loving the recital. They're loving when they do listen to the album. It's gotten some radio play, which is fun. Ooh, yeah, it was. Um, I had some radio play in Canada and some in uh, lots around the, you know, the United States, which is cool. Um, so people are definitely interested in it, but I think, I think it's just kind of slow moving. I'm, I'm a brand new, it's my debut album, right? So mm. no one really knows about me or my work. <laughs> <laughs> but they're going to know now because now you're going to get the, the Her Music Academia bump, right, listener? Yay! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell your friends. Yes, no, definitely, definitely click the link in the show notes to, to check it out. It is really, really fantastic <laughs> stuff. I'd also love to know, now this is a big question with my own personal baggage. So here's the backstory <laughs> is that uh, I just talked on a, a, a different podcast recording about, um, you know, I'm so, I'm so fascinated by the term activism and by the language mm -hmm. of activism. So I had this experience. This was a few years ago when someone referred to me and the work that I do on this podcast as activism and me as an activist. And I, I, I didn't like it. I was like, I don't like that. <laughs> and I thought about it really deeply for a while because it was like, what does that mean? And, and what does it mean that someone has now ascribed this to me? Like a term that I wouldn't really use to describe this work. Now, this work is work that I love to do. I do it because I really enjoy it. And I love the process of talking to people about their musical histories and speaking those for other people to enjoy. I do research that I really like that I find really interesting because obviously it intersects with my own identity. And I do think in terms of representation, it's important work, but I don't think representation and activism are the same thing. Um, I don't think representation and decolonial work are the same thing. I, you know, like I, so when this person like referred to me as active, I had such an adverse reaction to it because I don't want to now maybe maybe it was caught up in my own baggage of like activists are people who you know do marches and who get shot or who right like right like a really kind of dramatic dramatized movie version of what an activist is and what they do so that's something that I could probably think deeply about in terms of repackaging maybe what I associate with that term and who gets to be an activist and who, you know, who's allowed to do that sort of work. Um, but I think it's, it's much more entangled with risk taking, like what are you giving up in order to do this work and who benefits mm. from this work and who are you really doing it for? And so I would just love to know um, how you are interpreting like your, your work as activism and how how you came to the term operatic activism as well because that's such an interesting pairing um so yeah. I just I just love to hear from my own so for my own sake that I <laughs> so that I can <laughs> detangle all of my you know imagery around that term I just love to hear um kind of how you arrived at using the term yourself yeah that's a great question I think I struggle with it a lot to be honest mm -hmm. I I started using it because it best described what I was doing, which was making music using the texts of activists, yeah. um, which felt really relevant in the moment. It felt like I was honoring the tradition, like the literary tradition of speech writing. And mm. like the there's, you know, when we create art music from existing poetry, it's such an honor of that poet, right? It seems like we're really digging into their words and we are presenting them in this like musical presentation um, and interpretation of their work. And it feels like a, a deep honoring of their words. Um, and then you think of like opera and we do the same thing with plays, right? And so mm. for me, there was this missed opportunity in um, representing the voices of those who, in our community who were writing these incredible speeches. Who, mm. I mean, the words themselves deserve the same treatment as poetry, in my opinion. And so that's where I came at it from. For me, I and I the reason I've been struggling with this is because I currently, I mean, I am like 
activist in my own ways, like through certain aspects in my own community that we don't have to get into right now. But as far as like calling myself an activist, I would say I'm more an active member of my society, of my community. Mm. I don't call myself an activist, but I didn't realize that saying operatic activist was putting that out there. And so I've had to really evolve that idea myself, um, especially with the album. And like, I'm sending out these, you know, emails to press and trying to get the message out there. And it seems like a clear way to be like, look, I'm not just a soprano. I'm an operatic activist. Um, So it kind of packages (laughs) it, but it's, I didn't like that. And I couldn't Mm. figure out why. And so what I've come to with my, you know, we're always evolving is it feels much more authentic for me to say that I am very interested in being an active member of my society. Um, I love honoring the work of activists and that's where I came to the term. Mm. And I think I've come to this idea of like a compass guide that I want my work in music to be active. Mm. I want to activate my audiences. I want to represent, um, the voices of those who are speaking up for what matters to them personally, for what matters to the communities around them. Mm -hmm. Um, I think my definition of an activist is very similar with yours, right? It's this like idea of someone who's super brave and like seeing things in our society that need to change and, you know, doing the very hard work of organizing around that and informing people. And Mm -hmm. um, so I don't actually, I, I've actually, like, <laughs> it's hard because I, you know, I wrote all the material for this album like a year ago and it's like just coming out now. And so there's all of this like operatic activism, which I've unpacked in a lot of ways since then. Mm. And I think that it, it, like I said, it's evolved quite a bit. Um, but that said, it is a goal for me. I do want to be active in these ways. Yeah. And so as a compass guide, I think it is really valid. No, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. See, this is fascinating to me because you just did it again. You said just a soprano and then (laughs) and then added, well, I'm not just a soprano. I'm doing this, you know, this operatic activism. And like, why do we do that? Why do we? It's so fascinating. We strip away our identities, don't we, Mm. to do classical music? Yes. I I don't know. I think we've kind of like circled around this a couple of times today in our conversation. It's like we're not allowed to be our unique selves for some reason, or we don't allow ourselves to be that. Mm. And then when we try to, we have to like brand it or something. <laughs> I don't yes. Know. That you're not just another soprano. You're not like all the other sopranos. You're doing like right. actual real singing that matters or real work that matters <laughs> as if the sopranos that are singing Mozart, that, that doesn't not. matter. And see, that's such right. a, that's such a polarizing and like weirdly, like what a what a particular way to differentiate ourselves from the work of classical music that we're just not doing plain Jane classical music. Um, there must be a better way for us all to contextualize the work that we do in relation to each other as all important. Like you were saying earlier, that there's the importance of, of art for art's sake and not all art has to be activism in order for it to be important. But I think like... Thus, a thing is that art has such a clear place in the radical imagination. It has such a clear place in like decolonizing work, whether it is explicit, perhaps in in those pursuits or it's something else that is harder to recognize. And so I just this is so fascinating that we keep using this language (laughs) to differentiate (laughs) what we're doing as like a special type of classical music or a special type of music research or a special type. Like I think about this all the time in terms of, you know, getting into this PhD and doing music theory. And like, I don't want to be just a Mozart scholar or whatever, even though I, I like talking about Mozart or I like talking about Schubert or whatever. Like I like, (laughs) I like leader a lot. I like, you know, so that, that doesn't stop being a part of my musical identity. Um, but it does feel like, I guess, foregrounding black music is perhaps something that is 
unique, but also maybe profitable in a way, like in, in our particular moment of wanting an activist response and of wanting more and of, and of more people asking those questions about what is our music really doing? It's not that the, the old ways of doing stop doing and stop being effective. Um, I think it's just that it's expanding and we have to learn to relate to all of this music in, in relation to each other in a new way. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. But it's hard. I don't know how we're, I don't know. Wow. It is hard. You know, I had one of the, um, composers that I commissioned, Anthony Green, he's, um, just a fabulous person who has thought about so many of these things deeply. And, um, one of the most compelling parts of his proposal was that, um, he's black and, and he was like, you know, I'm drawn to this because I, am active in my community, but I don't want to just write activist music because I'm black, right? He's like, yes. I want to write classical music because I'm a classical composer. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yes, amen. Yes. <laughs> like, you know, and like I I wanted composers to be able to put their things that were important to them. So his work was in Dutch because he he speaks Dutch and was living in the Netherlands and he's from America, but he wanted to put together this, you know, this beautiful Dutch sonnet because he didn't see a lot of black composers represented in the Dutch canon. is it's by a Marxist poet um, who basically was very philosophical in supporting the socialist movement. She was um, Henrietta Holst, excuse me. She then was invited to talk at like a communist presentation, Mm. which was, of course, at the time, like very related to Marxism. And she was appalled. She could not believe what was happening with the you know, ideology that she had been supporting. And she wrote this, this book of poetry, and I think some prose um, called The Soft Powers and how soft powers will win and love will win in the end. And this is the sonnet we ended up setting that uh, Anthony composed so beautifully. And it's just all about love Mm. (laughs) and the, the activist act of just being kind and letting love be the power that guides us. And I think it's just a beautiful, you know, ode to goodness. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Again, listeners, links, please click it (laughs) so that you can listen. Um, Again, that's such a good point about like, just because I'm black doesn't make me an ad, you know, an an activist. And just, that's why I had such an adverse reaction to like, okay, I'm a black person with a microphone that doesn't make this an activist (laughs) podcast it makes it a podcast and you're yeah you're you're talking about things that are interesting to you right your roots you're like and things that have been limited in our educational upbringing in classical music Mm -hmm, right like mm -hmm. it's it's so valuable it it's there's no reason for it to be activist in nature and I'm sorry I didn't mean to to interrupt you I just want I I want to honor that (laughs) (laughs) it's important work. Um, I don't doubt that. And I don't, I don't doubt that it's importance and that hopefully 
it is fulfilling a need in the classical music community, right? So there's importance there without it being decolonial. I just want us to get real clear about what decolonial work is and isn't, people. Read A Third University as Possible. That's one of my favorite books, um, you know, on this topic. But um, yeah, yeah, I just, I, I find that that term operatic activism so interesting because it so clearly demonstrates that music and all different types of music, you know, classical, popular and otherwise, like have a place in the radical imagining of what we can give birth to. Right. And that imagery that you use so heavily throughout um, the album of, of giving birth to something and the labor that we're putting in the, in the pain of of our current political moment, giving birth to something greater and that this labor is an important part of that, I think. Yeah. I yeah. Um, so to finish up our conversation, I'd love to just hear um anything else about anything else that you're working on, anything else that you're looking forward to. And I want to touch on, um, this database of, of different language coaches <laughs> that you have again, links in the show notes for the listeners. Yeah, I'll start with the database. Cause I'm just so proud of it. So, you know, after I commissioned all of this music in the original languages, cause I felt like I was, you know, very good at, uh, doing new languages. Um, I didn't realize how, undersupported singers are in actually finding language sources that aren't in our traditional canon. And so we talk a big game in the classical community of like adding diversity, but I don't think we support artists in actually making that happen. Yeah. And so I really struggled to find coaches um, who could, I mean, you can, you can look for language coaches, right? You can find people by language when it comes to just learning a language and learning how to pronounce things on the surface level. But the weird manipulations we need to do to for sound, singing, yes. <laughs> um, for singing, especially in the classical register mm. and in the super high stuff that I do, there's a lot of detailed negotiations of language and to sing it authentically takes a lot of time and experience singing in that zone. And so um, I didn't, I couldn't find a place where I could search by language. And so I built one <laughs> and I just made a Google form and sent it out to every coach I know and asked them to send it out to their coach network and likewise. And, um, so I think I'm up to like 40 coaches on here, but I have, I, I haven't counted how many languages I have. I should look at that. It's pretty amazing though. So you can find it on my website at chelseahollow.com and you go and you just search in the language and it will organize all the results based on who is the most familiar with that. So native speakers of that language will be put first and um, then, you know, fluent and then conversational and just like, eh, I sort of know this language. I can help you get in the right direction will be at the bottom. Um, and then their contact information is there because it's, you know, we can we can work with people all over the world now with Zoom. So, um, you know, really we have every opportunity to jump into this. So that is really exciting to me, um, having that resource there. So please go check it out and share it with everyone. There's a link to the Google form if you, if you speak another language and want to be included, if you know how to, you know, sing classically in another language um, or how, what some good choices might be. Because for a lot of this, it's like, discovery of, you know, what does Arabic sound like with a classical soprano voice? How, what, what choices do we make, um, to modify certain registers? And, um, yeah, it's, it's a starting point. <laughs> so that's the main thing that I'm excited about right now. Um, I'm also, I think by the time this podcast comes out, I will have already performed this, but, um, it's just a workshop. It's, um, we're doing an opera, uh, called Dolores. It's based on Dolores Huerta, who um, is uh, an amazing figure in our in our history. Um, do you know who Dolores is? I don't think so. I'm just curious. So I've been surveying people. Do you know who Cesar Chavez is? Yeah. Okay, they were equal partners. <laughs> <laughs> I see. In all of their efforts, mm -hmm. um, when he was doing the hunger strike, that kind of brought brought uh, notoriety to. Um, the the farm workers um grape strike and the everything that was going on with that wow. um it started 
he, he did all this amazing work. And I feel like, I, so I grew up in California, so we learned about Cesar Chavez, but we didn't learn about Dolores Huerta. Sure. But she was, um, si se puede, yes we can. That is her phrase that she used to do to get the rallies excited and um, pumped up. Wow. And um, she's been largely written out of the history of mm. the United Farm, Farm Association, Association um, work. And so... She's still alive. We're doing an opera about her life and the grape strike. And um, it's very powerful. It's being commissioned by West Edge Opera. So we're just in the workshopping phase, but everyone should check it out. It's super powerful and very cool. Um, The music is incredible and incorporates all sorts of, we're doing um, chants by the Filipino farmers. Um, So we're singing like, huelga, huelga. And we're also doing, you know, chants by the the Mexican, Spanish speaking, um, you know, strikers. So then we move on to this like, viva la causa. And um, it sets the words of these amazing figures in our history. And um, it's just really... It's a beautiful work. It's very cathartic. I think it's the direction that new music should go to get new audiences in because it's like no one can watch that and be, you know, confused about the power of music. It is just it's so powerful to see um, these amazing voices brought to life on stage. Wow. Ooh, I can't wait to (laughs) actually hear it. That sounds so exciting. All right, so that is going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much to Chelsea Hollow for being on the show. It's always a really valuable experience for me to connect with other singers as I'm still in the really early stages of my performance career. And her work is just a shining example of how powerful a music performance career can be. Make sure you check out her debut album, Cycles of Resistance. It's available for streaming on a bunch of different platforms, so check the show notes for all of the links. If you want to get in touch with me about anything related to the show, if you listen to some of the music that we talked about and you want to talk about it with me, if you have recommendations for things I should talk about or read or listen to, please send me an email at hermusicacademia at gmail.com. Or go to my website, hermusicacademia.com, fill out the contact form there. If you're a musician, I would love to hear all about what you do in music. Thank you so much for rocking with us during this fall season. Until next time, thanks for listening.